0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another sunny day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Michael Seals, Chairman of the National Fallen Stock Company, a not-for-profit community interest company which facilitates an efficient and competitive nationwide service for the collection and disposal of fallen stock. Michael, hello. Good morning, Matthew. Good morning. Thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Now, normally we get straight into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, we must start there. How has this affected your organization?
1: Uh, Virtually not at all. It's Mm -hmm. been business as usual. The interesting thing about animals is they tend to continue dying, whether or not there's a pandemic or, or in the human population or not. So it's been very much business as usual. There've been no uh, real hiccups in the supply of the service.
0: Now, what sort of precautions have you had to take uh, uh, for your uh, uh, staff, uh, meaning to uh, collect these animals?
1: <laughs> it's um, it's actually a fairly distant process anyway. There's very little interaction between the people we collect the animals and also the um, uh, and the farmers that have them. We have a, a, a protocol. That places the animals in a particular area, the collectors go to that area, pick up the animals and depart. Uh, there is a paper process, but that's generally left uh, uh, in the appropriate place and the farmer picks it up at a later date. So the interaction is minimal.
0: So you were uh, pretty much COVID proof before COVID was a thing?
1: Well, we've been working on disease protocols before. Mm-hmm. Um, so both in terms of the people that are collecting animals and likewise the vehicles that contain them, you don't want any interaction between dead animals and live ones from one farm to another. So there are uh, protocols out there which ensure that there is better good biosecurity by everybody involved.
0: What sort of lessons can other businesses learn from the way that you have always operated?
1: Well, good biosecurity is always an issue, whether it's in the human or the animal population. Uh, and you need to embed it in the people that are working for you and your subcontractors uh, and the various other folks as well. I mean, our office uh, staff have changed the way they work. They, uh, initially, during lockdown, they worked from home. But because we're very IT-orientated, that wasn't a problem either. That's fantastic.
0: We should move on to the subject of leadership. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you?
1: An individual that um, actually is prepared to put their head above the parapet, come up with ideas, and drive them to delivery.
0: And how would you describe your day to day leadership style?
1: (laughs) There are some people that say it's quite aggressive, there are others that say it's thinking. It's a bit mixed, it depends on the particular circumstances. I'm also a farmer, I'm also a government advisor. Uh, so I bring different skills to the different um, subsets
0: of my life. Those are a lot of hats to juggle. Um, do you feel that you need to use different sorts of leadership for each one of those three roles?
1: Oh, indeed. Um, farming is frustrating in that uh, you have interaction with the weather. So if you take this year, this particular season, uh, it's been marked by a great uh, amount of wet weather in last winter, a huge amount of dry weather in the spring, And the combination from our particular point of view is the worst harvest in 44 years now um, that's frustrating it's it's difficult to manage Uh, it has financial implications so there's an awful lot of thinking goes on to the next stages Uh, if you take advising government that can be mildly frustrating at times um, but equally very rewarding because it gives you an opportunity to develop new ideas for instance, the post-Brexit world um, and the development of something called the Animal Health and Welfare Pathway. So you get the opportunity to create ideas, uh, debate them both with stakeholders and with government, and then eventually deliver.
0: Now, of course, uh, leadership is a, a derived skill. So where did you derive your leadership skills from? Did you have a particular role model or have you been shaped more by circumstance?
1: I think a combination of the two. Um, I was very fortunate to have um, a parent and an uncle who were both heavily involved in in aspects of leadership, one in Parliament and one within the industry. So you learn by observation. Uh, Circumstances give you the opportunity to hone that skill. And one or two people during my sort of lifetime of of contributing to different organisations, such as the National Farmers Union, for very kind enough to spend some time to help me uh, develop my uh, skills to lead and chair organizations, groups, etc.
0: Now, when it comes to leadership, uh, there is one aspect which most leaders aren't that keen on, and that's dealing with conflict. Uh, do you have a particular method for how you resolve conflict within the workplace?
1: Uh, well, we have. I have very little um, conflict issues within the workplace because I don't really have a huge directly employed labor force. Most of my activities are done through subcontractors, both at home and within the um, National Foreign Stock Company. So my direct interaction with staff is quite limited. Where I end up having to resolve matters is to, I'm the sort of final arbiter, I guess, of, of issues that arise. Uh, 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 in, as they would naturally do in any business.
0: Now, of course... So
1: in a sense, I act a bit of a mediator here and there.
0: And what is your method when you mediate?
1: Uh, try and actually marshal. I've learned, actually, I'll stop and start again and say I've learned that you have to marshal all the facts um, before you make a, a decision and question the, the the information that's given to you and then go forward from that basis is quite interesting. It takes a little bit of doing in the sense that as an individual farmer and a sole, an entrepreneur, uh, you, you tend to react quite quickly to circumstances, make instant decisions. When you're dealing with the outside bodies I deal with, I need to actually understand what the particular issues are. But then you've got to take people with you. Uh, you can't just sort of um, override folks. It's a question of working with people as well.
0: Now, when it comes to the next generation entering uh, the workforce, do you see a problem with recruitment within agriculture at the moment?
1: We've had a problem of recruitment in agriculture for a very long time. The perception is that the industry is um, badly perceived from the workforce. It's long hours, low pay, low skill. The reality is uh, the hours, yes, can be long, but it tends to be seasonal. The skill set is huge. The requirement is huge to actually learn to drive the machines we have efficiently. We've just trained a new combine driver mm. uh, this season, and he's 22, and he's, he's actually spent a season being trained by my by the old combine driver who was 70 and been doing it for the best part of 30 odd years, but knew the machines intimately and it's understanding the capability of the equipment and how you can make things how you can make things happen properly. So training is a big issue, Um, but the industry has this bad perception, uh, and the reality is very different. We need a highly skilled workforce. We are prepared to pay, but the hours are long.
0: What can we do to uh, address this, and how can we get more young people looking to take up a career in agriculture?
1: I don't think there's an easy answer to that. Um, It would be it would be trite to say that um, we can say the industry has a future that We can just carry on and and food will be produced and we we can bring people in. We can go to schools. We can have TV programs. There's a lot on about farming at the moment in different guises. But most of them sort of demonstrate the harder side of the industry. Very few demonstrate the high-tech nature of the way we work, the equipment we work with, uh, and the fact that it is a highly skilled job, but it is still a manual job. that requires people to give a lot of concentration for a long time. And I don't know the answer. And I've watched um, the number of farms in my local area disappear, the number of people disappear over the last 25 years. And even my own son is not that interested in the farming side. Um, But we're fortunate to have neighbours who who have youngsters who are.
0: Well, certainly isn't a problem that we're going to solve in the next 30 seconds. But I have enjoyed having a chance to speak with you. Unfortunately, our time together has drawn to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for the National Fallen Stock Company?
1: Um, we're embarking on a new IT system. We're developing a paperless system and bringing everything uh, up to date in, in in technical terms. So it's quite innovative. Uh, we're running a pilot at the moment, and we hope to deploy that uh, successful pilot across the sector Uh, this autumn.
0: Well, Michael, it's been a pleasure to have you on the program today, and I do hope that we can have you on again soon. But for now, Michael, thank you. Thank you, Matthew. That was Michael Seals, chairman of the National Fallen Stock Company. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is my exclusive interview with our chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett, welcome.
2: Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think
0: now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus?
2: Were it to be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of solomon really to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly there's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up not just on the economic and employment front which will be devastating enough but on the health and social well-being front enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic. Concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19 those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated. That will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation, and that will need all of us to pull together as well.
0: Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business?
2: I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sudat for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who had only just come into office Structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget, and those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation